0: Good morning, Disciples Church. Good to see you this morning. Welcome. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Joshua Kirstein. The privilege to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church and excited to be preaching through the letter of James. What a powerful letter that God has given us and trusted us with. And uh, it's our joy in this season to be working through it verse by verse. Today, we get to focus just on verse 18. It's a special verse uh, in the overall arc. Of, of what this letter is and we've titled the series Faith at Work um, and I've titled today's sermon Made Alive it's a special sermon I've been praying a lot for what God would do this day and excited to be doing it with you together here today let me first read the verse and then talk about why this is special and worthy of our close attention today James chapter 1 verse 18 of his own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James opened his letter in verse 1 by announcing who he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. His audience is also revealed as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. There are Jewish Christians who have been dispersed. They're going through many forms of trial, persecution, suffering. And he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to to speak of what it looks like to have steadfast faith in the midst of our time in this broken and fallen world. That that steadfast faith is a sign of true life with God through Jesus Christ. And their, remaining, their faith remaining at work will prove that they are true possessors of the greatest blessing of God, which is life with God as a result of Christ's work on our behalf. The fulfillment of all the promised blessing of the Old Testament, fulfilled in Calvary and spoken of passionately by the apostles throughout the New Testament. James has warned his listeners in the early verses of the letter so far not to walk in doubt, as we often are prone to do, or to boast in the temporary things of life. He also brought clarity that God does not tempt his people to evil or sin, but that it is our own flesh that we must fight every day with the power of Christ who has saved us, and who will persevere us to the end, according to Scripture. Last week we read James and studied verse 16 and 17, and this beautiful portrayal of our good God, the giver of good gifts, who's called the Father of Lights. If you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to grab the podcast and and catch a real ground laying part of his work here in Moving into the immutability of God, that that he is unchanging. One of his important attributes of his character, um, his very nature. We have a right understanding of God in these things. And now in verse 18, he's going to highlight the greatest gift ever given by God. Salvation to undeserving people. New life, eternal life with God. My prayer is at the end of today's sermon, you you truly are welling up with worship. Authentic praise for God, who he is and how he's worked. That our lives would move farther and farther away from routines of religion and into this amazing relationship with our good God through the power of the gospel. To know him and worship him and live for him with all of our lives. In this single verse, we're given some awesome overview of some of the critical aspects of how and who God saves. This is such an important study and understanding to climb into, and even to continue once you have a basic understanding of these things, for a couple reasons. Number one, we live in a day and an age where many modern Christians have been taught a very unbiblical view of how and why God saves. talked about this last week, that one of the greatest deceptions of the enemy is not to lure you to like or necessarily follow the enemy. One of the greatest deceptions is simply to get you to think wrongly about God. Think about that. One of the greatest deceptions of the enemy is to simply get us to think wrongly about God and how he works. For everything begins and ends with God. If you get God wrong, we get everything wrong. Another reason why this verse and study is so important is a right understanding of the sovereignty of God in salvation. I promise you, we'll take your faith, your worship, your submission to him, not just to another level, but another stratosphere. I mean, it it is amazing to see how God works in these things. When we get smaller and he gets bigger, what that does to our desperation, our faith, and our worship of Him. I promise you, you're surrounded by a lot of people here at Disciples Church, if you're newer, who've been on this road and, and has experienced these things as God's been growing us and working in us in these wonderful truths. And it's so exciting to see that continue. Um, these truths, when rightly understood, work to help kill our flesh and a fleshly tendency to make us big and God small. God, who by his truly amazing grace has planned, waited, acted, and finished the most important work ever done in the history of mankind. I can say these things are so important and this journey is so real because it's my story. I grew up in evangelical circles um, who didn't hold a biblical view of these things, hold a much more popular view that you'd find in many common just evangelical churches who don't really focus to preach the Word of God and hold fast to the truths of God. Like many of you, maybe I, I thought... The popular, modern, small God, big man view of the things of salvation were what was real, what was right, and I didn't get the blessing uh, of someone to sit with me and teach me or or, or give me some good books. The point: M- my journey really came personally for just years of just study of the scriptures. I couldn't get around these truths because they're not in just a couple pockets or corners. It's all over the Holy Scriptures again and again and again. The sovereignty of God in salvation is the teaching of God in His Word to us. It was everywhere. It's like what I heard one of you say the other day. Once you see it clearly, you see it all throughout God's Word. And it's true. Last year, a good friend of mine, that Jeremy, um, our music director, big, beautiful beard, who sings us with this big, beautiful voice, uh, is in the Motorcycle Club with me, and we have a ministry to uh, a very unique part of our society, and the um, Motorcycle Club, very lost part of our society, and um, to bring the gospel to some dark places. And, and so I get to meet and get to know some amazing individuals, one by which was a longtime member of the Hells Angels Uh, Has a very dark um, and lost um, past. And by God's grace, was saved by God. Um, And over the last five years, has become an entirely new man. He still looks, if he walks in the room, like he'll end your life. (laughs) But I can't go anywhere with him. I mean, you know, he just has a passionate love for Jesus. And there was a special moment in his journey in the last five years of growing in faith and study of God's word. He called me and he said, he'd been studying the gospel of John. He said, I had nothing to do with my salvation. And he was just blown away. and He was so excited to tell me because he, know, he knows I've been teaching and pointing out these things. And he was, he's like, God made me alive. And he's due all the credit. And, and it was just such a joy to see his joy for these truths. And, and exaltation of who God is and his bigness and his sovereignty. Um, and and i have loved to see that joy in many of you on your journey. And it's been sweet to walk with you in these things. You must understand that the sovereignty of God in salvation is the historic, orthodox, lasting, proven theology of the Christian church. Going all the way back to Christ... Through the apostles, the writing of the New Testament, the the reformers, uh, and our precious historic confessions of faith are united in the conviction of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And yet, still today, in many churches, in a majority of churches, a more synergistic view that God and man partner together in salvation is taught, is believed. And it is just sad. It, it, what's interesting, though, is, is that view of things is, is not popular for many more than a couple hundred years. It doesn't have the long-standing feet of the Orthodox teachings of Scriptures, and yet it's just become so wildly popular in modern cultures, in cities, and in people. But I praise God. I praise God for his work because there is a modern day reformation happening uh, in many churches, including ours. Our, our, our church is the First Baptist Church of Bakersfield and, uh, in our 129th year of ministry here in Bakersfield. goes back to the very roots of the city. And about 10 years ago, in 2008, um, a, a reformation began in our church of just being convicted for the authority of God's word and preaching of the word and the centrality of the gospel for the putting away of much of the programmatic mode of the modern church uh, and to get back to the basics of making disciples, of experiencing authentic community together and sending equipped people unto the nations with the gospel. Um, And so it's just been amazing to see uh, what God has done in and through us Um, And, man, he is due all the credit. By the amazing grace of God alone are we saved. He is due all the praise. God is the one who saves. God is the one who is to be praised. King David said it well. In the Psalms, in multiple places, I'll I'll give you two. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 62, verse 1, he says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. God himself declares in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Jonah, famous story of Jonah and his very prominent role in religion of the day and his arrogance to not do what God had called him to do. And in God's sovereignty, he brings about this great storm. It, can I just highlight one of my favorite parts about Jonah's story? Is if, if and when you're going through seasons sometimes of a great storm, that many times, like for Jonah, It is God's mercy in your life to awaken you to the priorities of God instead of the idols of the heart that you've been caught up living for. Sometimes the most loving thing he can do is wreck your temporary idols, wreck your temporary positions, even sometimes um, just ways of life, in order to bring you desperate before the living God, who is your great and lasting Treasure and hope. God ordains this amazing storm and Jonah's thrown overboard to satisfy that God's bringing his um, judgment on Jonah for his disobedience. And in the belly of a great fish, not a great well, that's Pinocchio, <laughs> but a great fish, a large fish, Jonah has his moment of salvation where he sees clearly his desperate need for God and declares in Jonah 2, chapter 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. I've been praying for many of you in preparation uh, for today's sermon in James 1.18. I pray God gives you eyes to see and ears to hear the way that God's word teaches us about these things. I pray that you would lean in. I pray that you would ask questions. I pray you would wrestle and struggle with us. And we're excited to do that with you. Why? Because for many of us, there were some seasons of wrestling, struggling through these things to see them. And I just say, hey, hold us accountable to not tell you our ideas, but to point you to the authority of Scripture in all these things. I'm thrilled to get to teach on this passage today. Um, And I pray that this introduction serves us well as we chew into some of these deep areas of theology and our understanding of how and why God saves I pray that God has great conviction for you and revelation for you today as we study and that you might look back on July 22nd, 2018 as a day by which the mighty God did some awesome work, laid some great foundation in your life for where he is going to take you from this point forward for his eternal glory and your eternal good. Amen? All right, let's dig in. James 1, 18. Of... His own will. He brought us forth. Of his own will is a potent statement of clarity that tells us who chooses, who will be saved. Is it each individual's will to choose God and salvation? widely and popularly held? Or is it God who chooses who will be saved? This is a serious question because with it comes who will be praised for these things. With it also comes clarity of whether or not we did anything to sway God or to choose him. Did we perform an act or a series of actions to merit being chosen? Uh, Is there any part of our salvation that I can take credit for? Is there any part of my standing before the righteous judge at the end of my life, whereby I will say, here is what I contributed? The scriptures answer again and again and again is no. A few key texts to look at. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Uh, 12 sets some context so we understand what we're dealing with in 13. 12 read and seen by itself could lead you to believe something out of context, which is why we constantly want to see Scripture in context. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name he gave the right to become children of God. Left alone, that could look a lot like, here's what you got to do, and then God will save you, and then then he'll make you his. But look look at the fullness of of the statement. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, new birth, salvation, I'll come back to that later, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So let's break this down quickly. Salvation is not of blood. The clarity that's being brought here means that your new birth, your salvation, is in no way linked to who your family is. It's not a part of your heritage, not a part of your bloodline, your genetic structure. It. That's clarified by Paul, uh, maybe real well, in some of the opening parts of chapter 9 of Romans. He says in Romans 9.8, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. What Paul's dealing with here in the beginning of Romans 8 is is the the idea that some had, that if they were part of Israel physical Israel, God's chosen people among all people. You can't read the Bible and see that God's not a God who chooses. Okay, He chose Noah's family and destroyed everyone else. God is a God who chooses. And again, I don't know how you're reading the scripture and not see that that is his holy work again and again and again. He chose little Israel to be a physical people for him in the old covenant to point to the new. Paul's clarity in this text is to say... You are not the people of God simply because you are of the bloodline of physical Israel, but you must be of the promise. Speaking of the covenant that God made in eternity past to save a people, his chosen people, who would be of actually every tribe, tongue, and language, the clarity is given later, but pointing to the fact that it's of those that God would choose and not of your bloodline that determines that and, and that's the emphasis in John as well you're not born you're not given salvation or given new birth based on blood and then he goes to next nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man so is it my will is it my choice and here he's saying no see the Bible teaches clearly that before we are reborn given new spiritual life we are spiritually dead that the will of the natural man in our flesh, in our sin, hates God, doesn't submit to God, doesn't worship God, is opposed to God. We see this throughout Scripture. Again, for the sake of the grandness of these doctrines, I I have to move us quickly today. But said very poignantly, Romans 8, 7 through 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh, so the natural man not reborn, not saved yet, still in their sin, set on the flesh, living according to the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's there's a state of your spiritual reality that must change. You are dead in your flesh. Jesus also teaches the flesh Left to itself only chooses sin, never chooses God until the Spirit of God gives new life, gives new birth, which is where we're headed. But let's hear Jesus' words, John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Many people, myself included, were taught growing up that man is free enough to choose God. And believe in his gospel. The Bible often and clearly says that man is not free, as many commonly think of free will. Instead, man is the opposite of free in our nature and will because in our flesh we are enslaved to sin. You're not free. When you're enslaved, when you're in sin and spiritually dead, you only choose sin. You do not choose God. So the modern idea is that man is sick, but not dead in their sin. That's not what the scriptures teach. John eight thirty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The people who show the fruit of their life is sin. I practice sin. I have no conviction for honoring God. I have conviction of the flesh. I'm a slave to sin. Man's will is enslaved. So does, does the enslaved man still choose what he does every day? Absolutely. He just operates within the state of his nature, within the state of his enslaved will, which is to sin. Unless it's freed by God. Ephesians 2, chapter one um, sorry, verse one says that we Christians were all, once before new birth, dead in trespasses and sins. The point of our deadness is that we're incapable of any life with God. Our hearts are blind. Incapable of seeing the sweetness of the glory of God and the grace of the gospel. Incapable of longing for him. Incapable of obeying him. That which is dead does not act. What is spiritually dead does not spiritually act. It must first be made alive. So... so why, John says, who were born new birth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God's will, not ours, to choose to act upon and give new birth and save those whom He wills. This is James' point in the beginning of our verse. Of His own will I can't tell you how many parts of God's holy word and I love it as we begin to see this every word means something and it is the last thing that we should ever get bored with the word of God is so much life so much depth so much amazing things for us of his own will he brought us forth for many generations, mankind in our flesh has struggled with the idea that God chooses whom he would save. We want to rail against his declaration that that's how he acts and come up with some kind of economy that we think is better. And so a lot of times what people will say is, how is God just if he chooses who will be saved? And, and uh, before we look at That question is actually posed in scripture and then answered. We'll look at that text in a second. Let me remind us what we saw last week in verse 16 and 17. The declaration that God is good. And the giver of perfect and good gifts. He's the father of lights. He's unchanging. He is God. He is complete. His eternal plan. His perfect ways. He's good in all that he does. These are foundational understandings about who God is and then therefore why it is just that God operates as he does because of who he is, who he is. To give him every right to without conditions individually elect who he would save. Um, There's a great place where God's election is spoken of clearly. If I had more time this morning, I would actually exegete this entire middle passage of Romans 9. Um, And yet we don't have time. So we're going to fly right into where Paul asked the question for the people. He says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So what he just got done talking about was God's election of Jacob, the younger, over Esau, the older, in the Old Testament. He, from eternity past, from before they even did anything good or bad, he chose and loved Jacob, Jacob and specifically declared his hatred against Esau. And, and so Paul goes, so is there injustice on God's part? That's the question. And Paul says, clearly, by no means. For he says to Moses, quoting another great and famous moment in time, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, listen carefully, it depends not on human will, our will, or exertion, our performance, but on God who has mercy. Again, with time, I'd love to take this whole thing apart. There's so much more gold here. And again, one of the great testings of where so many churches go wrong in these matters is you'd be hard-pressed to find many modern churches who ever preached Romans 9 in the Holy Scriptures. Why? Because they don't want to do business with these things. Why? Because to people in the flesh, it doesn't sell well. Why? Because in our flesh... We like things to work out our way, right? We're all guilty of that. I mean, this becomes very personal. When we're talking about loved ones, that we're going, hey, there, there's salvation all over our family, and why not my sister, my daughter, my and, and, and we are guilty. I get chills thinking about it. Of holding God in contempt that he would not act the way we want him to. And and Paul later in this passage says, who are you, O man, to tell the molder what he will do with the clay? Creator, what he will do with the creation. It is our sin that would cause us to say to a holy and perfect God that we have a better idea or way than he does. That it's just simply an arrogant position to hold. Which I and many of us once held in our upbringing, our teaching of these things, And again, I I blame really more of the the shepherds and and the misteaching of these things. And I I, I implore you to lean in to understand, again, what does God's word declare about these things that we'd repent of those old positions and follow his holy word? It is not our choice or our will to choose that brings about salvation, but God's free choice and will. So... When we begin to see the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the worthiness of God, and begin to see the depravity of man, the wickedness of man, that that we're so arrogant about ourselves, we love to say how good people are, and maybe compared to other wicked people, some people are really good, but compared to the perfection of God, who is the standard, we are not... All well, scriptures go so far to declare that man, apart from Christ, in our flesh, our best efforts, you could take the most good person apart from Christ, who does nothing under the glory of God, those best efforts in scriptures are compared to that of filthy, soiled, menstrual rags. That's how good our good is, apart from Christ. And why? Man, I'm on a. Why? Because if I do nothing unto the glory of God, then everything good I do is still sin. That's another sermon. I'll come back. (laughs) When we see the holiness of God correct, and the depth of our depravity correctly, we won't hold God in contempt and say, why doesn't God save all? Why would I not say that? Because I see how unworthy we are compared to his holiness. So why would I say, why does not he just to save all? Or maybe go so far to say at least my loved ones who haven't trusted Christ with their lives. Instead, we will, we will say God's holiness, our depravity, our wickedness, in light of these truths, we would say, it is amazing that God saves any. You just pray that that truth would just wash over you, convict you, challenge you this morning. That he is truly good for saving any that he would in his grace choose to save. Because none of us deserve life with him for what we've done. Paul says this so well in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. When it comes to our salvation, we have nothing to boast in. This is why I encourage people all the time to stop telling people about the day you chose God. Or the day you accepted God in your heart. Phrases and terms that are not necessarily biblical. And maybe even if in some way they are, tend to put the highlight of the story on what you did. How you got to a place where you chose God. And in some weird ways, it might not be your intention, it's still kind of glory to you. Instead, I encourage you to say, this was when God saved me. Because in that statement, it's all glory to God. Let me tell you about when God gave me new birth, gave me eyes to see and ears to hear, gave me true conviction for my sin to trust him with my life. Like It's glory to God. Look at what God did to save me. Glory to him. So when James says, of his own will, he brought us forth, I pray that... You celebrate the sovereign will of God to choose any. That that statement's true of his own will. He brought any forth is amazing and just boggling. If you really stop to think about these things, that's true. And then for some of us to get to say that's true of me, it should just boggle you, not to bring arrogance, but just humble worship and submission to him. (laughs) His amazing grace is why we sing. And why we testify. Amen? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. I'm going to come back to he brought us forth. Let's look at by the word of truth. When James says that our new birth happens by the word of truth, he's referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ as an agent of salvation. The other occurrences of this phrase, the word of truth in the New Testament, are always linked to the gospel as an agent of salvation. One place we see this is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Second. Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There are many, sadly, who grossly mishandle the word of truth, who pervert the gospel of Jesus and speak of man-made, man-centered man-exalting things and call it gospel when essentially what it is is false gospel. In our Word of Truth Catechism, a great and helpful tool we have here at Disciples Church to understand the basics of faith, to teach our children, our loved ones these things, to build our lives on these things, um, which we will begin a midweek study of starting in September any of you who have been through it are like pounding down the door and to bring your friends to go through it the second time because it was so helpful and good. I'm excited for that. But the Word of Truth Catechism states this about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect Sinless life, substitutional sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved. And they are reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. It's the beautiful gospel, Jesus Christ. It is the word of truth, the gospel, that God has ordained to use to save those whom he has chosen. A people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is why God commands us, the saved saints, the church, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. We don't know who he's chosen. He does. His command on the church is to preach the gospel. People will overswing these theological foundations and say because God knows and everything, we just sit back. That's disobedience. That's sin. Why? Because we are commanded to preach the gospel to everyone that puts in, he puts in our path unto the nations until he takes us home. That's our job. Because it is the vehicle by which he has chosen to bring about salvation. The hearing, the announcing, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the vehicle by which then God Brings the truths of what he's done to those whom He chooses to bring forth new life in Christ. So, without the hearing of the gospel, no one could respond and be saved. This scriptures testify, Romans 10:14, how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? Or chapter 10, verse seventeen, Faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ hearing the word of truth proclaimed the clarity needed here is that there are many over the generations who have heard with their physical ears the gospel preached happens in churches and on streets and in neighborhoods and homes all the time they hear the gospel preached and yet for many they do not respond This is because their sin makes them spiritually dead as we talked about earlier and deaf to the good news of Jesus. They can hear it. They could even say it back to you but it just doesn't mean anything to them yet. It doesn't, doesn't level them with faith and belief and a life change. Another way to say this is those to whom God does not make effective the gospel call they'll reject it. This brings about then God's effective gospel call for those whom God has chosen in the time he has chosen. Realize that because you have a loved one who's not yet saved doesn't mean that he's not or she's not particularly part of whom God has chosen. This might not be their time yet. So we never stop praying for those who are unsaved. We never for a moment try to figure out or declare who that is. We don't know. That's not our place. We're to testify the gospel and make disciples of the nations, we're to do what God's command is to do. But for God's elect, he chooses to make effective the gospel call as a kind of divine summons from the king of the universe in his perfect time. The gospels preached or testified of and in God's perfect time, what has not meant anything means something. Why? How? It has such power that it always brings about the response that God demands of it. Because he gives them new birth, he unstops their spiritually deaf ears, he opens their spiritually blind eyes, and now the gospel is the greatest news they've ever heard. I'm getting ahead of myself, we'll come back to new birth in a moment. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is Jesus speaking of God's effective gospel call. A specific example of this that we see in Scripture, of God working effectively and ordaining, is Paul is seen in Paul's first visit to Philippi, a woman who sold purple cloth by the name of Lydia. We hear her testimony, and it's, one, it's glorious, and it's to the point, and yet it blesses us. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. So there are many who are hearing Paul's preaching of the gospel. That's the general gospel call. God made it effective for Lydia. He opened her heart to give heed to it. Again, the scriptures don't speak that that's something we do. It constantly says, when we read it rightly and carefully, that that's God's work. God has to make alive what is dead. Take the heart of stone, turn it to the heart of flesh, so that her heart is changed to receive the good news and believe. Peter speaks of new birth that comes upon the power of the gospel being preached and heard in 1 Peter 1:23 and 25. You have been born anew not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That word is the good news which, which was preached to you. Speaking to the saints who are saved, born again, and the vehicle by which that is is by the word of truth, the, the gospel being preached. So, church, We need to preach. We need to to join God first in praising him that he's written the word, given us the gospel to teach and to preach and to testify of. But I pray that we would be more bold than we are in testifying of the gospel and saying it rightly and boldly and truly. Why? Because because that's what God's called us to do. And, And do you know how freeing it is when now it's no longer up to you to word those sentences just right to get them to do something because it's not even something that they do without God's holy work anyway, your role is to preach and testify the gospel. That's it. This has transformed my speaking and my preaching. I used to be a really good wielder of messages in the old system, in the more synergistic system I was talking about earlier whereby it's the preacher's job to convince you, to woo you, to do something emotional, to choose him. And so we had to get good at telling stories. And I was good at it. And and wooing a crowd and speaking at conventions and at camps and and working for that response until the conviction of God's word and the growth of these truths helped me to see with the reformers that that's not God's word. It's not the call of my life. The call of my life is to boldly preach the word of God because it's him who does the wooing and the acting and the new birth. That's his work. That's not man's to do. I don't have to twist your arm, convince you to do something because until God makes your heart open and ready to receive the truth, nothing you're going to do or I'm going to do to change that. The call of my life is to speak it. The command on the hearer's life is to repent and believe, but it is up to God as to whom he chooses and who he saves as we've already seen clearly. And praise God for the work that he's done since then, since that transformation, since the way preaching's changed and the the wielding of the word has changed. What a blessing, what a freedom to stay faithful. No longer have to come up with all these creative sermon series that are birthed by man and schemed by man to try to attract a crowd, a seeker crowd. There's no seeker crowd. There are people who are dead in sin and people who are made alive in Christ. We preach the gospel to all of them and trust God to do the saving. That's the way of the word of God. And so we joyfully participate in these things. Church, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Be bold in the speaking of these truths. Romans 1.16 says so clearly, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Next, in the order of salvation, uh, as we see um, spelled out, God's election and, 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 and the gospel call and making an effect of that gospel call is what we call regeneration, which is new birth. And that's what we see here in our passage today. Look back at James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The Greek word James uses for the word forth here, our English word forth. The Greek word there means to beget, to generate, to produce. Like bringing forth a child from the womb. Uh, Another way of simply saying this is just giving birth. Of God's own will, he chose to bring his people in his time forth. To give them new birth. This is not physical new birth, but spiritual new birth. And why is that needed? Because what is dead must be made alive. Jesus makes this clear in a very famous interaction in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is even misunderstanding and caught up in these things. Jesus speaks of new birth, and and, and Nicodemus is like, so we crawl into our mother's womb again, like what he's just all tripped up. And no, 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 it's not physical, it's a spiritual new birth. Jesus said it clearly in John 3:3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is. For one to be saved, they must be given spiritual birth. Why? Because what is spiritually dead must be made spiritually alive. Later in the New Testament, other imagery is used throughout so the deaf can spiritually hear. The spiritually blind can now spiritually see. The spiritually dead can believe in Christ and exercise faith where they wouldn't and couldn't do that in their slavery to sin, in their spiritual deadness. New birth is required. Unless one is born again, Jesus says. The word again there in the Greek is more literally translated from above or top down. Unless one is born from above. Uh, historic theologian A.W. Pink speaks to this really well. I want to read a quote from him. The new birth is an imperative necessity because the natural man is altogether devoid of spiritual life. It is not that he is ignorant and needs instruction. It is not that he is feeble and needs invigorating It is not that he is sickly and needs doctoring. His case is far, far worse. He is dead in trespasses and sins. This is no poetical figure of speech. It is a solemn reality, little as it is perceived by the majority of people. The sinner is spiritually lifeless and needs quickening. He is a spiritual corpse and needs bringing from death unto life. He is a member of the old creation, which is under the curse of God. And unless he is made a new creation in Christ, he will lie under the old curse to all eternity. With the natural man, what the natural man needs above everything else is life, divine life. And as birth is the gateway to life, he must be born again. And except he be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is final. Who has brought us forth? Who regenerates our dead heart unto spiritual life? God does. No one... None of you are bold enough or arrogant enough to take uh, any claim or ownership of your physical birth, right? You didn't climb out of the womb and say, "Mom, well, I'm glad I could help out with that, <laughs> right? Our birth is something that happens to us. It is the same for our spiritual birth. We often call new birth regeneration regeneration is the sovereign act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life. The Holy Spirit breathes life into us we 're dead absent of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells it comes to work in and through us. God, which is life. Uh, this act of God in regeneration is very clearly uh, prophesied, spoken of by Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules the sovereign act of God in regeneration in new birth. I want you to see this reality James is highlighting here in verse 18 as it relates, watch this, to what he just said in verse 17. Look with me, James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. See with me that the new birth of a Christian of a member of God's household brought from deserved death to life is the most potent example of God's good giving it is our sin that begets or gives birth to death we saw that in verse 15 look back with me in verse 15 Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. But God, in his sovereign election, in his sovereign will, in his perfect will, gives birth to many, he chooses, unto life we are only made spiritually alive by the grace and power of God. Amen? he would be worshipped, that he would be known in this way, spoken about in this way. A final point on this before we get to the last. It is important to rightly understand God's work in salvation. That regeneration comes before conversion. This is where modern... Teaching gets it wrong. They want to say your believing in God comes before new birth, conversion before regeneration. Biblically speaking that is not true. What is dead must be made alive, reborn so that it now can believe, can trust God, can be can turn. First Corinthians two fourteen. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Before rebirth, how do you choose? How do you, how do you turn? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without spiritual discernment, there's no spiritual action So he takes the dead heart and he gives it life. And then and only then am I able to see and savor what God has done in the gospel. And it flattens me. I'm in awe of it. It breaks me. I love to watch it break. Grown men. I love to watch it break. Our our children, they finally come to see their depravity and and, and their desperate need for Jesus. It's the most amazing moment God's work to make us alive. And so then the question is, what do you do when you've been reborn spiritually? When you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear, what do you do with that? What happens then is we see our sin in a way we've never seen it before. We see it as what it is. And and We confess it. You know what confession means? To agree with God. To agree together with is the root word of confession. So we agree with God, finally, what our sin really is and what it deserves. I confess it, and I I, now, in the clarity of my new birth, want nothing to do with it. And what I want, what I see I'm desperate for is nothing I'll perform, but only the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we repent and confess our sin, and we trust Jesus. We trust our whole lives to Jesus. We say, it's all yours. You've bought me and set me free. It is your joy to finally see the damning reality that it is to be Lord of your own life. It's your joy to finally see how damning that is and then to trust it all to Jesus. That he truly becomes your Savior and Lord, Lord of every part of your life. Not a prayer you say, a religious thing you go through for a season and slip it in your back pocket and keep doing your life the way you want to. It changes it all. It begins to redeem and shape and conform it all. (laughs) This is repentance and belief. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is conversion. It's a spiritual turning from sin and a life of sin and a life of our own lordship to a life in Christ and obedience in him and living for his glory. Can I make one quick clarity here? Our conversion or our faith, our trust in God is often where we love to take credit because we say, That's, I did that. And, and we will agree with you you did do that. No one confessed their sin or trusted Jesus for you. Not someone else. God didn't do that for you. You did that. So let's be clear about that. But while the action and the repentance of, and belief is ours, the power and the motivation to do it is not ours, but it is a gracious gift of God. The clearest place we see this in Scripture is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I read it earlier. By, the, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The Scriptures affirm that it is you and not anyone else who trust in Jesus. But who do you give the credit of your faith to? If it is by your power, then praise be to you. But if it's by God's power, then praise be to God. He gave me saving faith. This is the way the scriptures teach this. Philippians 1.29 says it very clearly. It has been granted or given to you that for the sake or name or glory of Christ, you should not only believe, that's a gift, your faith is a gift, but also suffer for his sake a gift to suffer in this temporary time for the glory of the Lord. Church, what this does is it produces justification that God declares us just. We have been reborn. We have turned from sin unto Christ, Jesus' perfect work in our place. His righteousness laid upon us means the holy God now can declare us just, redeemed, pardoned from our sin because of Jesus And what that then means is the Holy God adopts us into his family, brings us near for eternity, secures us in his family as blood-bought sons and daughters for all eternity. This is good news, which leads us to the final point that James makes in the verse. Look at it with me. Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Church, the scriptures tell us that God is going to give new birth to creation. There's a new heaven and a new earth he's preparing. James is highlighting here that we who are redeemed by God, who are made alive by Christ, are the firstfruits of that new creation. James this is James way of pulling the eyes and the ears of his listeners his brothers and sisters who are going through great turmoil in their dispersion he's pulling that view off of that stuff and onto the great victory they have in Christ to see themselves rightly as the first fruits of the new creation the eternal glory that awaits us the redeemed people of God with him forever Paul said it well in Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? (laughs) James, referring to us as the first fruits, is something that happens throughout the New Testament. An example quickly 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved in the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The priority of God, now watch this, next to his own glory, clearly the priority of God is his own glory. In creation, in the new creation, is the same as his priority in the first creation this place and what is that priority what is that crescendo that climax it's us it's mankind made in the image of God it's not the rivers the mountains the stars all that stuff we talked about last week those things are amazing but it's us and that is his priority in the new creation we are the highlight the redeemed of God the first fruits a testimony among a lost and dark world of a new creation of an eternal glory of the living God he's pointing to this beautiful reality. We who are his redeemed, his sheep, his chosen people, the first fruits of the new creation, more important than the beauty of the restored world, more important than the nature or animals or any other created thing. Why are we more important? Now watch this. Because of our worship of him. Because we will join with the heavenly choir in eternal praise of our good God. Close your eyes real quick and just listen to the words of Revelation chapter 7, John's words in 9 and 10. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Amen. And then in, verse 20, in chapter 21. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, we're reminded not just of the coming victory for those who are saved by God and who are his firstfruits, but also the coming demise of those who remain in their sin and trust themselves rather than God. For them awaits God's righteous and eternal wrath. And so I just ask you very plainly today, are you truly born again? Have you truly trusted God with your life and are living for him? If not, you must be reborn. You must be saved. My job is to preach the gospel of Jesus. Your job, believers, is to testify the gospel of Jesus. God's job is to open the ears of those he will save in his perfect time. And the command on all people is to repent and believe and follow him the rest of your days. And if it is his will, you will be part of the first fruits of God's redeemed kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Church, we have much to praise him for. Stand with me. We're going to praise him as we go this morning and sing and celebrate these gospel truths of his grace. Lord, we thank you for this time, this opportunity to study this amazing verse in James 1, verse 18, the clarity it gives us. For your sovereign election, the clarity it gives us for your sovereign hand in new birth, the work of the word of truth, the gospel, to make us a first fruits among the creatures. Father, that our testimony today, leaving this place, would not just be about us, but it would be about the testimony you want us to be to a lost and dark and sin-ridden world. The first fruits, the testimony of the gospel would be on our lips, would be in our actions in our life to make the most of our days. Lord, for those here today seeing the gospel, savoring the gospel for maybe the first time by your sovereign appointment that they would share that with us, that they would announce this new beginning and celebrate with us and we could begin the journey of their spiritual growth in Christ together as a church family. And Lord, for all of us who are truly saved and set free, that we would worship and hold high these marvelous truths of the sovereignty of God and your saving grace. Hear us, Lord, as we sing in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing loud, church.